0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. This week, I'm pleased to welcome a special guest to the podcast, former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster served as an officer in the U.S. Army for 34 years, during which he commanded forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he held many important roles that helped shape the U.S. military, including a stint as Director of the Army Capabilities Integration Center. General McMaster holds a Ph.D. in military history, has written several books, and he is now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's speaking to us from Palo Alto, California. Here
1: comes the General. Ladies and gentlemen. Here comes the General. The moment you've been waiting for. Here comes the General.
0: Hello, General McMaster. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey, Allison, thanks for the opportunity to be with you.
0: So here in Israel, we've been a little distracted from the war in Europe with our new wave of terror attacks over the past week that killed 11 people, but we know that most of the world's eyes are still on Ukraine. What do you make of Russian officials' latest announcements that Russia will fundamentally cut back military activity in the direction of uh, Kyiv and Cherkiv, and uh, paired with Putin's statement that the main goal of his operation is to gain control of the Donbass region, kind of stepping back from any kind of general control over uh, Ukraine in general? Does this read to you as a sign that Russia is really in trouble and actually looking for some sort of diplomatic solution, or is it some sort of tactical gaslighting?
1: Yeah, you know, the Russian offensive has been defeated, if you describe defeat as the Russians being unable to accomplish their initial objectives. And this is a sign of Putin coming to the inescapable conclusion that he cannot sustain an offensive, especially against the, you know, the intermediate objectives of Kiev and Odessa. So that's what this means. And what they're trying to do is provide cover for that defeat by circumscribing their objectives and trying to sue for peace in a way that will allow Putin to at least claim some sort of victory. And avoid the domestic blowback and the embarrassment and humiliation associated with the Ukrainians defeating the Russian.
0: Based on your knowledge of Russian capabilities, how surprised were you by the poor performance of the Russian military in the operation? Like, what do you think the biggest mistakes were made by Putin and his advisors?
1: I wasn't surprised at all. And I wasn't surprised because my assumptions about how the campaign would go were completely the opposite of Putin's flawed assumptions. Putin entered the offensive with four fundamentally flawed assumptions. First of all, that the Ukrainian people lacked the will to sustain a defense against Russia and that the Ukrainian leadership was weak. The second was that the Ukrainian military would fold quickly and he'd be able to accomplish his objectives quickly as a result. The third was that the Russian military would be able to demonstrate the military prowess to subjugate Ukraine quite quickly and establish, especially affect a, a coup de main oriented on Kiev and, and then on Odessa. And then finally, that he would get, Putin would get a lot of disunity in the West that would dilute the response. All four of those assumptions were false. And what you see is a military that is a Russian military that is incapable of a sustained offensive over distance against a determined defending enemy.
0: How could his military intelligence have been so flawed, you know, considering this is a country that is so culturally and geographically close to Russia?
1: Well, this is what happens to authoritarians. You the people around the authoritarian leader, tell that leader what he wants to hear. You know, and this is what happened with Putin. I'm sure you saw the the update that he received from the military with Shoigu and Gerasimov, the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the Forces, see at the end of that long table with those long faces. Well, I mean, I, I think what, what's happened is we should recognize that, you know, that war is the great auditor of military institutions. It's easy to look good on propaganda films, you know, with tanks charging across frozen tundra, you know, in Belarus. But once you make contact with a determined enemy, that's when you can see, can this military conduct effective reconnaissance and make contact with the enemy on its own terms? No, they can't. Can they integrate all arms, and that's infantry and armored forces and fires, artillery and air-delivered fires, to present multiple dilemmas to an enemy? No, they can't. Can they fight in complex terrain like cities? No. So what are they left with? What can they do? They can bombard cities. They can rubble cities. And this is really the capability that the Ukrainians have to continue to be able to go after with maybe some additional assets to continue to cut off their supply lines. And again, you know, this is also a logistics failure, right? You need to be able to provide ammunition and fuel and medical support and maintenance support forward. And they've utterly failed logistically as well.
0: So, over the past summer, you were extremely critical of what you described as the defeatist posture of the Biden White House and its policy towards Afghanistan, generally, U.S. policy towards Afghanistan in the longer term, withdrawal, and the trend in the West overall of what you've called strategic narcissism. Do you see this failure of U.S. determination and world determination to stand by Afghanistan as having emboldened authoritarian regimes like Putin's? And here from Tel Aviv, where we've just experienced terrorist attacks. Two of them from ISIS, you know, ISIS felt like a, you know, a blast from the past. Do you feel like the Taliban's victory there played a part in emboldening extremists and authoritarian leaders around the world?
1: Absolutely, Alison. You can draw a direct line from the humiliating surrender and withdrawal from Afghanistan, surrender to a terrorist organization to Putin's decision to attack Ukraine. Remember, it was just as we were committing that humiliating withdrawal that Putin issued his six thousand word essay under his name, in which he said, you know, Ukraine is is not a viable state. All Ukrainians would be part of Mother Russia. This is when I'm convinced he decided to invade. And I think you can make the analogy back to 2013, 2014, when then President Obama did not enforce the red line in Syria. The red line associated with if Syria commits mass murder of innocents with the most heinous weapons on earth, chemical agents and in this case nerve agents in particular, that Assad would pay the consequences. Well, of course, he didn't enforce that red line, and I think there's a direct line between that unenforced red line and the invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And you know what, Alison, it's really bad when a terrorist organization can declare victory and look as if they're in the ascendancy. Now they own a state. Siraj Haqqani is Minister of Interior in Afghanistan. He recently gave a speech in Kandahar in which he boasted that he had organized over a 1,000 suicide bomber attacks against the Afghan people. The so-called you know, leader of Afghanistan is Haibatullah Akhundzada, who encouraged his 17-year-old son to commit mass murder by suicide. So this is who we're up against. And we deluded ourselves. We created the Taliban in Afghanistan we wanted so we could prioritize withdrawal. Now, I mean, there's some estimates out there that the Afghan government under the Taliban have issued you know, 15,000 passports. To terrorists. So I think we are in for an intensified campaign of terrorism. And, you know, we keep saying we want to end the endless wars, but wars don't end when one party disengages. And we have to recognize that these jihadist terrorist organizations are waging an endless jihad against us
0: you've been less critical of biden's handling of the crisis in ukraine as you were of what happened in afghanistan do you think that this is going to change the mindset in the white house and you know in fact in the u.s and across the world in america at least swing the pendulum back from the neo isolationism that we've been seeing
1: i would hope so but i just don't see it happening because when i look at at some of the other policies for example you know it should be clear now that it was wrong to cancel a Canadian pipeline, oil pipeline, and greenlight a Russian pipeline to give Russia even more coercive power over Europe's economy? What are the big shifts that have been made on energy policy so the United States can compensate for the loss of that oil? None. Instead, what are we doing? We're supplicating to the Venezuelans and the Iranians to get them to pump more oil. We we're engaged in humiliating negotiations with the, the Iranians, in which it's pretty apparent that we've made concession after concession, with even the negotiating team's deputy resigning in disgust about it. That's, of course, portraying tremendous weakness to the Iranians, who are certain to take any relief of sanctions and intensify their four decade long proxy war against the United States, against their Arab neighbors, and especially against Israel. So I see this tendency toward the belief that disengagement is an unmitigated good as continuing despite the object lesson
0: of Ukraine. You mentioned Iran when you were President Trump's national security advisor, you told him not to leave the Iran deal without an alternative in place. And then about a month right after you left, your successor, John Bolton, was national security advisor when, in fact, he left the deal. So what do you think of the consequences of uh, the Trump White House's ultimate decision to leave the JCPOA? And where do you stand on these current negotiations to re-enter?
1: Well, just to make the record clear, I gave him multiple options, and the option that he took was to not to certify that the JCPOA was in the U.S. interest. This is based on U.S. domestic legislation, the Inara Act, it's called, and to stay in the deal temporarily, because what I explained to the president and the cabinet agreed, most of the cabinet agreed, is that, hey, once you get out, you're out. But until you get out, you have leverage, leverage in particular with like-minded partners in Europe who can impose sanctions on Iran for their missile program, for their continuous support for terrorist organizations across the region. And the idea was that we would keep the conversation about Iran and Iran's permanent hostility to us. Once we got out of the deal, my warning was that the conversation will shift about how bad we are to get out of the deal, even though it was a fundamentally flawed deal that was likely just giving them cover to continue their nuclear program anyway. So, I think that it was okay to get out. I was pretty much agnostic about it, but I do think we missed an opportunity maybe to stay in longer to see if we could get our European allies, others, to impose more sanctions on the regime and ultimately, you know, force a choice. I mean, this is what I write about in Battlegrounds is that we have to force the Iranians to make a choice. Either behave like a responsible nation and be integrated into the global economy or continue your proxy wars against us, your support for terrorist organizations, and be treated like the pariah you deserve to be treated as.
0: I mean, when you compare the strength and the unity of the sanctions against Russia to uh, what we saw against Iran, there's no comparison, right?
1: Well, that's right. And of course, you, know, you you have some similarities there in terms of both of them are hydrocarbon economies. And we have not yet really sanctioned uh, Russia's hydrocarbon exports. I think we should do that. I think we should also enforce the existing sanctions on Iran. As you know, China is buying a lot more of Iranian oil now, which has given them a lifeline. From the Iranian perspective, you know, they don't care about getting in the deal back in the deal that much anymore. They're not feeling the amount of pressure that they did previously because there's been a relaxation of that pressure just based on the predisposition of the Biden administration. So I think what is needed is a 180 degree shift in the approach to Iran and, and a return to the uh, strategy of, of maximum pressure in effort to constrain at least the resources that Iran has to apply to its its proxy wars. And I think it's important to note that Iran did have to reduce the size of the proxy army, the compensation for Hezbollah and so forth, as a result of the sanctions taken against them, as well as some other blows to them associated with the collapse of, of the Lebanese you know, financial sect, and also additional sanctions on Assad and the Syrians. So, so- I'm very concerned that we're actually you know, going back to the same flawed assumptions that gave us the weak, flawed nuclear deal under the Obama administration. And that's the assumption that hey, if we welcome Iran in, they'll moderate their behavior. What they're going to do is take those profits to do two things, intensify the proxy war and then also to tighten the grip of the existing theocratic dictatorship on power. And that's because the Bunyads, who are you know the offspring of the clerical order, as well as the IRGC and their children and families, they're the beneficial owners of most of these Iranian companies. And they've established criminalized patronage network, which is a critical aspect of how they stay in power. So we are actually, in many ways, you know, reinforcing Iran's ability to accelerate their nuclear program, to accelerate their missile program, and to intensify their proxy war if we relieve these sanctions.
0: So just to pin you down, if there is a possibility of a, quote unquote, longer and stronger JCPOA, you uh, think that we're, it's not worthwhile to pursue it and perhaps reenter some sort of deal?
1: Allison? I think the possibility of a longer and stronger JCPOA is zero. It's zero. And that's because I think the Iranians think they don't need it that much anymore. And of course, you know, we had this fantasy, right, that we could work, you know, with Rouhani, for example, or Foreign Minister Zarif. Hey, they're the shop window. Right. As you know, the new president is right in the club, you know, with with the hardliners who really believe the ideology of the revolution. And so what, what I think we have to do is we have to recognize two facts about Iran. Fact one is the leadership believes in the ideology of the revolution and they will continue, continue their proxy wars across the region. Proxy wars that are designed to keep the Arab world perpetually weak by keeping them enmeshed in conflict and using the weakness of those arab states to place a proxy army on the border of israel and to threaten israel with destruction i mean that's what they really want to do that's what they say we should pay attention to what they want to say and then the second fact is that they've been waging this this four decade long proxy war against us and no evidence that they're going to stop
0: so just to link the two topics that we've been discussing ukraine and iran how do you view israel's wariness of siding more completely with the U.S. and its allies regarding the Ukraine due to the situation on its northern border and its desire not to antagonize Putin in order to retain sort of freedom of operation in that area? Do you think Israel made a long-term strategic mistake not to line up more forcefully with the U.S. and be more responsive to Zelensky's repeated requests that it supply military equipment to Ukraine?
1: Yeah. Well, I think Israelis ought to be embarrassed by it, right? I mean, I, I think Israelis ought to demand more from their government leaders. And I I think that, you know, this idea that you hedge with Vladimir Putin to compensate for the, you know, the concerns about an American administration who might attenuate or or lessen, you know, the support for Israel, you know, that's a a long pattern. It's always been wrong. The U.S.-Israeli alliance is unshakable because there's tremendous bipartisan support for it, right? There's not a lot of bipartisan support for much in in, in the United States, but you have it for the U.S.-Israeli alliance. And whenever... Israel was under duress. The United States came to Israel's aid. Of course, Israel has demonstrated tremendous ability to fight for itself. But the United States, I think, has been a stalwart ally despite administrations that have not prioritized the relationship. And I would say that the Obama administration and now the Biden administration falls into that category. So I think that uh, there are opportunities here, but those opportunities are really with the United States. And sadly, you know, it should be with the United States and the U.S. good relationships with Gulf states, which, as you know, are on the rocks right now also based on the Biden administration's policy toward the Middle East. One of the things, Allison, that bothers me, I write about this extensively in Battlegrounds, is, you know, hey, we keep saying we're going to leave. We're going to leave the Middle East. We're going to disengage. Well, we never really disengage. But by saying that all the time, what it does is it encourages this hedging behavior. Saudi Arabia buys you know air defense weapon systems from Russia. You know, this is why... The UAE allows China to get its its nose under the tent in terms of massive investments in the UAE. This is why the UAE abstains from a vote in the United Nations. You know, I think Israeli leaders ought to be embarrassed about not fully supporting Zelensky and the Ukrainians, because as you can see, right, the situation is at least a little bit analogous to the situation of Israel with a relatively small, although pretty big country in terms of geographic size, but relatively small country that has been attacked without provocation from a more powerful neighbor.
0: That's what I wanted kind of to ask you as we wrap up this conversation as Israelis. And I know that you have a lot of uh, friends from your many years in the military and the political world and contacts in Israel. And now you're in Palo Alto, right, which is the other high tech hub of the world next to uh, Tel Aviv and Herzliya. When you talk to Israelis and they look at what's happened in Afghanistan and what's happening in Ukraine. What lessons do you think that Israeli military and political leaders should draw from how these two uh, situations have been playing out?
1: Well, I think, first of all, hey, we're all in this together, right? Look at these horrible terrorist attacks that Israel's just experienced, right? It's heartbreaking for me. It's heartbreaking for every single American. So what this should do is, is re- help us redouble our commitment to each other and to each other's security. You know, in recent Israeli history that are analogous to, to the times we're in right now, I mean, it, you know, after the 67 war, you can make the argument that Israel became complacent, right? The thought, hey, you know, it's, you know we, so, we so soundly defeated the Arab coalition that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to pay attention to the same degree of, of combat readiness. And then, of course, in the 73 war, was surprised by some of the new, the new capabilities that en- the enemies had and then made the adjustments. I think you could say the same thing about the 2006 Lebanon war. I mean, we're democracies, right? So we have the ability to correct, right, to get better, Short of revolution, that's what these totalitarian regimes don't have. Hey, Vladimir Putin looks really strong all the time, right? He rides around shirtless on horse horseback. Vladimir Zelensky probably thought, "Hey, who's this guy? He's a ballroom dancer, right? He's a <laughs> he's an actor, you know." And of course, you know that Putin is wrong, right? He is weak, actually. I think Israelis ought to read the joint statement between Xi Jinping and Putin just prior to the Olympics, and just think of the arrogance that that flows through that. Right, the talk, the talk about a new era of international relations, about the balance of, of power shifting away, you know, from our free and open societies and toward their authoritarian systems. And you know, last year, remember, China had the the vast celebration of the hundredth anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, there was another anniversary they didn't talk about, and that was the anniversary of Gorbachev's resignation and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I'll tell you, Allison, I think we are on the cusp of winning Cold War II, and we just don't know it yet. And I think Israel has to be a very important part of uh, ensuring the strength of our free and open societies and defending against these authoritarian regimes.
0: Well, that's a great note to close out on. General McMaster, it's really been an honor to have you on our podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, you guys.
0: And that wraps up this edition of Haaretz Weekend. Many thanks to my guest, General H.R. McMaster, and to our producer and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. Don't forget to tune in next week for Haaretz Weekly on Monday with Amir Tibon. Until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.